right. Well, it's a privilege to be with you and uh, just so thankful that we have this opportunity to study God's word together. Uh, we're going to be getting back into the Gospel of Luke in a few weeks now and uh, looking forward to just coming and studying through the Gospel of Luke. But we've uh, taken some time at the beginning of this year, the beginning of this school year, uh, to just step back and think a little bit about what God wants us as a church to be. And uh, this series is getting long, I know, because there's a lot that we want to say and see that God has for us. But if you'll take your Bible, if you haven't, and open to Philippians chapter 3, I want us to look today at uh, the end of the chapter, verses 17 through 21, and talk a little bit about the good life, the good life, which sounds funny, I, I know, the good life, but what you want to happen, basically. Uh, your your goals, uh, your vision maybe, the kind of life that you are hoping for, the picture that comes into your mind when you think about who you want to be, uh, the kind of life you want to live, what you think it means to flourish as a human, basically. That's a, a fancy way of putting it, but this is a text, Philippians chapter 3, where Paul gives us a very different picture of the good life. A very different picture of the good life. And it's important we look at that picture and understand it. Because for one thing, we all have a picture of the good life already, even before we open up our Bibles. Uh, and that picture shapes us. The picture you have of the good life has a real influence on you. What you get excited about, what you don't get excited about, what gets you upset, what you pursue, what you avoid. It impacts your feelings. It impacts your thoughts, your decisions. Last week, we talked about priorities. It impacts your priorities. So for example, kind of a silly example, but if, if my picture of the good life is living on a farm somewhere with my children and having them farm with me, and you know, all of us kind of staying on that farm for generation after generation after generation, I'm not going to be very excited when they get a good education and go to Harvard and end up living in the city, you know, right? Obviously. Though that might excite someone else. That, that would be the dream for them. But our responses would be really different because we have a different vision of the good life. And so this is kind of fundamental. Our vision of the good life shapes us. It influences us. How we spend our time, how we spend our money. How we spend our energy is inextricably connected back to this picture we have of what it means to live a good life. In fact, you know, we've been talking about gospel culture the past few weeks. That's the title for this series, having a gospel culture. And our vision of the good life shapes our culture. For example, the American idea of being free, that the good life is getting to do what you want to do whenever you want to do it, shapes the way we respond when we think our freedom is violated. So I've seen this with my own two eyes. We respond very differently here than they do in other places because we have a, a different picture of what it means to flourish as a human. Our vision of the good life shapes our culture and actually our culture shapes our vision of the good life. And that's, that's the problem. Our vision of the good life shapes our culture, and often our culture shapes our vision of the good life. And by culture here, I don't mean gospel culture, unfortunately. I mean American culture. That's why I want us to look at this passage. This passage is so helpful. It helps us get a different picture of the good life, and that is so necessary because our culture, the culture in which we live, the American culture, is giving us a picture of human flourishing all the time. We are being evangelized. We are being discipled all the time. There are messages, there are gospels, good news, that is being preached to us all the time. In fact, I was just uh, listening or watching the, the Lakers uh, this week. I was watching a, a commercial while we were watching the Lakers game. This is wealth. This is worth. That's what it said. 
and they were giving different pictures in the commercial. This is worth. In other words, this is what matters in life. And then they say, wealth is important. We can help you build it. And what's that? You realize what that is, right? That's not just a commercial. That is literally evangelism. That's a belief that they're trying to get you to believe. If you're going to experience the things that matter, you need wealth. That's not just a fact. That's a belief. They don't admit it, of course. They don't come out and say it, but the unbelieving world believes. They have certain beliefs about life, where it comes from, where it ends, what's it about. And they don't call them beliefs. That's what makes it tricky. They just assume them. But they are beliefs. And those beliefs shape the picture of the good life they're selling. And they are selling. They really are selling. And they have a lot of means at their disposal to sell it. In other words, you're living in a culture that is constantly trying to catechize you, to disciple you into thinking about life the way they do. And the problem I'm trying to press on you, really part of why we're doing this whole series, is that so often we don't even realize how deeply our picture of the good life has been influenced by our culture. Even though we don't believe what they do about where life came from and about where life is, is going, we have a totally different set of beliefs, and yet our lives so often look like the world's in terms of what drives us, what gets us excited, what we get upset about. And one reason is because so often, deep down, deep, deep down, our vision of the good life is more shaped by what the culture believes than the gospel. So we need help. That's what I'm, I'm saying. I need help. You need help. We all need help having a biblical picture of the good life that actually shapes the way we live life. And if you look carefully at Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 and following, I think Paul gives it. He's telling the Philippians how they should think. And really, he's giving them a different picture of the good life, and he, he shows them how to pursue it. He gives very practical steps that we can take towards reshaping our vision of the good life. And then he tells us why it's so important. He motivates us. So if you like outlines, there it is. Paul helps us pursue a gospel-shaped culture in three ways. First, he gives us a different picture of the good life. You might say that's what he does. Second, how. He shows us practically how we can pursue that kind of life. And then third, why. Why do we need to pursue this so diligently? But first, look at the picture itself, at what Paul wants for them. And for us, verse 17, he writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, which seems kind of simple, I know, but is actually huge. Because what Paul wants for us is that we be like him and that we be like people who are like him. Because that's what imitate means, obviously. I want you to be like me. So if you want a picture of the good life, a gospel-shaped good life, look at Paul. Paul is the picture. Be like Paul. There are all kinds of people out there that the world is parading before us as pictures of the good life. It is constant. The world is constantly telling us, you want a good life? Be like this person. Professional sports stars, movie stars super educated, rich people, whatever. But the Bible here gives us Paul. What you should want is to be like Paul. But what does that mean exactly? Because Paul's not just talking about everything, obviously. When he says, imitate me, he's not saying, be like me in every way. I like tacos, you need to like tacos. And too bad for Paul, of course, that they didn't have tacos back then. But you know what I mean. I wear this long robe and sandals 
so you need to wear a long robe and sandals. No, it's 2,000 years later. That's not what Paul is wanting us to imitate. He's wanting us to imitate instead what he's been talking about in Philippians chapter 3 and the whole book, really. He doesn't just say, imitate me. We have to look at how he's described what he wants us to imitate in this chapter, the context, which is basically being someone who values Christ and eternal life above everything else. Being Christ-dominated, Christ-centered, that's what you should want, Christ, to glorify Christ, to be like Christ, to know Christ, to be a person who views everything in his life in, in context with his relationship with Christ. If you, if you look back at verses 2 through 16, Paul's been sharing his testimony, basically. And he's been sharing his testimony because he knows there are false teachers out there who, who want to lead the Philippians astray, who want to lead us astray. He says in verse 2, look out for the dogs. And he's talking about people, false teachers. And he's warning them, and he's warning us as well, that in this world there are people who are religious but actually are dangerous because they're making a big deal out of things that are not important to God. The way Paul describes them, they're putting their confidence in the flesh, and they want you to as well. And so they're saying, this is what you need. This is what you need to uh, seek after. And maybe they're not denying Jesus, but they are adding to him. And Paul says they're dangerous. And to help you understand why, he goes back to how he was saved. He's like, let me tell you about my story. Because I had everything going for me, pretty much. I was a Jew, and not just any Jew. I checked all the boxes, Jew of Jews. So you compare me to anyone else, and you're going to find that I was up there at the top. But verse 7, the key, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And Paul's talking gospel there, basically. He's going back to the beginning of his life as a Christian and he's comparing what he found in Christ with what all these other people valued as important and significant and saying Jesus is worth giving up all this other stuff up for. It's, it's Jesus above all for Paul. And in fact, I guess the, the, the point is, really, if you look back at the beginning of the Christian life, Jesus has to be above all. It's, it's not optional, Paul's saying. There, there's no such thing as Jesus' end. It's only Jesus. I had to count all this other stuff as rubbish to gain Christ. My past, my heritage, the respect of other people, I counted as rubbish. And happily, actually, because in comparison to the value of everything else, there is no comparison. And so throughout these verses, Paul is showing us how he thinks and understands life, life for Paul revolves around Jesus, knowing Jesus, being found in Jesus, having the righteousness of Jesus, becoming like Jesus, suffering with Jesus and for Jesus, and being raised from the dead with Jesus, and receiving the gift of eternal life from Jesus is what matters most. In fact, we can put it in more exclusive terms it's what matters. And, you know, we make life so complicated sometimes, but it's not really that complicated. If you just go back to the beginning of the Christian life, how did it start? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus above all. And there you go. That's life. That's how you interpret life. So what's your hope when you stand before God? The righteousness of Christ. What's the purpose of life now? To glorify Christ. And where do you find your identity in life, being united with Christ. So how are you supposed to think about everything in life as being centered on Jesus? And that Jesus-centered focus is throughout the whole book of Philippians. If you think back to how this letter started in chapter 1, Paul's in prison, and some people are trying to give him trouble as he's in prison, and yet he's not complaining. He's rejoicing. Because why? He says in Chapter 1, verse 20, because Jesus is being exalted. He's got one overwhelming, life-controlling goal, Paul, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
to put it real simply to Paul, to live is Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me, to live is Christ, which is why while he's in prison and he's suffering and he's being taken advantage of and he's not, he's not losing heart and he's not acting as if the world is coming to an end. Why? Not because he's being fake. Not because he's like, oh, I am like the Chuck Norris of Christians. I am super tough and I just like sitting here in prison, chained to a Roman jailer. This is fun for me. But instead, the reason he's rejoicing is because for Paul to live is Christ. This is the ultimate purpose of life. The ultimate purpose of my life, Paul is saying, is the exaltation of Christ. And so if Christ is being exalted for me, that's life. And the big question, of course, as we look at Paul is, is that the purpose of your life? Is that how you dream of the good life? If Christ is being exalted, if God is using me in any way to make Jesus look good, at the end of the day, that's the good life. That's what I'm dreaming of. Imagine if our picture, if Paul is our picture. Here is a picture of the good life, Paul. How does that impact us as, as a church, as people? Or more specifically, what does being so Christ-dominated and Christ-centered like Paul look like exactly? Because coming back to chapter 3, Paul does give us a specific idea of what it meant for him practically. He tells us back in chapter 3, verse 13, One thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I love that phrase, one thing, because Paul here is saved. He's received the righteousness of God through faith, but he doesn't want us to think that's where it ended for him. So he's like, you know what? I press on. And he's using athletic language there in verse 12. So you might picture him like a runner at the beginning of the race. He says he started the race depending on Christ, with Christ as everything. And the finish line he's pressing toward is being glorified with Christ. That's the goal. That's the prize of the upward call of God that he's talking about. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. And the call of God is your salvation. And what God called Paul for and called you for when you got saved, God's purpose in calling you was upward. It was to glorify you. That's the upward call. It's you standing there being glorified with Jesus. If you are saved, if, that, if you're a Christian, that's why God saved you, how God saved you. You're saved by grace. And why did God save you? You're saved for glory. He saved you by grace to glorify you with Jesus. Paul says in Titus, you've been chosen for the hope of eternal life. He says in Romans 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God chose you to be like Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul explains it like this. Chapter 2, verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. In other words, you were saved to be like Jesus, to be beautiful like Jesus. That's the prize of the upward call that Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 3. That's what he's saved for. And Paul says, that is what I'm living for. I've stopped trusting in anything else so that I might be saved by Jesus. I've given up everything that I might have a relationship with Jesus, and I'm dedicating everything to being like Jesus, and I'm living for the day that I will be with Jesus. I'm going to be made like Jesus, so I want to be like Jesus. I'm going to be glorified with Jesus, so I want to glorify Jesus. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. 
kind of reminds me of Colossians chapter 3, actually, like the next page there, if you flip a page or two, where Paul's not just talking about himself, he's talking about us as Christians and what we should want and what we should seek for and what we should strive for. And he writes, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. And so you see how Paul thought, right? It's like, you want to understand life? You have to focus on Christ. First, what God has done through Christ. You died with Christ, and you have been raised with Christ. And then, then you have to look to what God is going to do through Christ, because Christ is coming back, and you're going to be revealed with Christ in glory. And so that's our story. That is what's real for us. And those realities have to shape the way we think about our lives right now, what we want, what we seek. If you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Keep pressing on toward the prize of the upward call of God, which means you want to know what it looks like to live with a Christ-centered perspective right now. It looks like living for eternity. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He sort of sums up what I'm talking about in a very specific way. When he was like 19 or something. Resolved. This is my goal. To work at getting for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power I'm capable of. In other words, while you're alive, doing everything you possibly can for what's coming after you die. I press on toward the goal of the upward call. In other words, you want to know how to live a Christ-centered life. Here's a question that can help clarify. How would your life be different if you believed in the resurrection of the dead? Because here in Philippians, Paul's saying, to live is Christ. To die is gain. And really, dying is gain because living is Christ. Or to come at it from the other angle, to live is Christ. What does that look like? It looks like living like dying is gain. One thing I do, one thing I do, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Can you say that with the Apostle Paul? Because the truth is, I think sometimes we can't. Or we don't. We don't press on. And you know what the problem is? Sometimes we don't even really have a good idea of what it would look like if we did. I was on a radio show once, and we were talking about these missionaries, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and a few others who went to South America to take the gospel to people who never heard it before, and they died doing that. And I was thinking as we were talking about these missionaries, that it's kind of easy to see how they were living a Christ-centered life, how, how they were living with an eternal perspective. It was obvious because they were willing to die on that beach for, for Jesus. But obviously not all of us are called to go to unreached people this year with the gospel and die on a beach somewhere in South America. And so as we're living here in Orange County and doing our jobs, the question is, how do we live like Paul here? How do we live all out for Christ here? What does it look like for us to do everything we can now for what's going to happen after we die here in Orange County? Because that sometimes seems more, more complicated. And we sometimes have a hard time even knowing where to start. Which is what I love about this passage, actually, why we're here in this text. Because Paul doesn't only give us this picture of the good life. Uh, of living a Christ-centered life with an eternal perspective the, the way he did. But he also gives us some simple steps we can take toward pursuing that kind of life right now. This is the how. Second, Paul says, look at it again. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What? Live a Christ-centered life like I am with an eternal perspective. How? Look at the command. Let me pick that apart for a minute because there's maybe more here than you might think. So first, one simple step you can take to becoming more like Paul 
is by just stopping doing your own thing and thinking, how can I pattern my life after someone like Paul? What would it look like for me to pattern my life after Paul? And the, the, the key word there, of course, is pattern, because Paul's not talking about precise copying. Paul had a unique role, a unique gift, all of that. But when Paul talks about imitation, he's talking about the imitation of a pattern. So it is like, look at the direction of Paul's life. Is that the direction of your life? Look at Paul's priorities. Are those your priorities? Look at what Paul gets excited about. Is that what you get excited about? Look at what Paul sacrifices for. Is that what you're sacrificing for? Because Paul's not saying we all need to be apostles. None of us are apostles in the way that Paul was. And Paul's not saying we all need to be traveling preachers. We're not all even gifted as preachers. Besides, we're a body, and Paul says that, and each part of the body has a, has a different role, and the hand doesn't do us any good if it's trying to be the elbow, you know? So Paul's not talking about precise copying. Paul's talking about what drives you. What drives you? How do you live with a Christ-centered, eternal perspective the way Paul does? First, you have to think. You have to think. You can't just keep going. You have to stop and think, what would it look like for me here to live with this Christ-centered, eternal perspective the way Paul does. And if you notice here, Paul actually goes further. He says, join, join in imitating me. That's the command. And that word join is a pretty important word too. It's a second step because this is not something that Paul is wanting you to do on your own. This is to us together as, as a church. That's why I'm talking about this in our series on gospel culture. It's because we do this together. We join and imitating Paul, which means first step, think, second step, friendships. We, we need to develop friendships with one another where we are trying to help each other think like Paul would think and act like Paul would act and pursue what Paul would pursue in our context, with our gifts, with our callings. I wonder how many people, uh, I wonder how many of you have people in your lives that have access to the real you. The you inside that's got a plan, that's making goals. I sometimes think the problem with a lot of us is, you know, in terms of why we don't change and become more like Paul is because we don't really want to change and become more like Paul who's like Jesus. <laughs> why we don't become more like Jesus really is the question why. I think sometimes it's because our, our main goal is to do what we want. <laughs> And uh, so we know we can't just say that, so we've got to kind of figure out a way of relating to other people where it doesn't just look like we want to do what we want. And one thing that often happens because of that is we never let anybody into the real us that's actually making the real decisions. And so if you're going to become like Paul, you need friends who know what you really want and what you're really seeking and the goals you're really making, and friends that you allow to poke at that. You give them permission. They can confront that, and they can rebuke that, or they can encourage that. You need friends who can say to you, you know, I see that you're really wanting this, and, and this is what's driving you. You have this goal, but where is Jesus in that? How does that make sense in light of eternity? If we're going to live a Christ-centered life, we need to join. We need to help each other look back and imitate Paul. And we don't have to just look at Paul either to figure this out. We can also look at people who are being like Paul. If you look down at Philippians 3 again, Paul adds, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul's saying, be looking out for, keep your eyes on, pay attention to those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, we need not just to be an example, we need to have examples. And so this is a, a third step we can take to becoming more like Paul. Think, join, look, look, look for examples. I remember at one point in my life, I had always thought about the importance of being an example. My parents sort of pounded that into my head. You need to be an example. But here Paul is saying, you don't just need to be an example, you need examples. 
you need to keep your eyes on, you need to look out for, you need to pay attention to. This is active. This is deliberate. And so what are you doing? You're searching for people whose lifestyle is like Paul's so you can be like them. Have you ever done that? Where? Where do you look for these kinds of examples? Of course, the first place to look is the Bible. I think of Hebrews 11, which tells us what it looks like to live with an internal perspective. It gives us examples. But we don't just have the Bible. We have examples outside the Bible as well. We've got thousands of years of church history that's filled with Christians who are trying to live all out for Christ. And so as you're looking at your life and you're thinking about what kind of life should I live, you should be looking at these godly men and women who went before you and asking what you can learn from them about living all out for Christ today. There are Christians out there who help you become a better Christian. Find them. If you want to become a person who lives with a Christ-centered eternal perspective, find people who live with a Christ-centered eternal perspective. And one of the easiest ways to do that, honestly, besides reading the Bible, is reading about how other godly Christians lived the Christian life, like read biography. It was uh, George Mueller who taught me about depending on God in prayer. It was William Carey who taught me about faithfully persevering and doing the right thing, even when nothing seemed to be working out. It's a man named Ernest Riesinger. Probably you haven't heard of Ernest Riesinger, but there was a beautiful biography written about Ernest Riesinger who reminded me that it was possible for a businessman who wasn't a pastor to use his calling and gifting in a powerful way to advance the cause of Christ. If you want to live all out for Christ, Paul's saying here, you need examples. So, who in your life are you keeping your eyes on, imitating, to help you live for Christ? Now, God's kind. This is also part of why he gives you elders and why their character, why character is so important when it comes to elders. Because they're supposed to be people who you can look at and say, hmm, oh, that's a little bit what it looks like to live all out for Christ here in Orange County. But let me tell you why, a couple reasons why doing that is so important. Why this needs to be our culture. Not just going with the flow, but joining together in imitating Paul, the way he says in verse 17, and looking for examples that you can copy so we can be Christ-centered people actually living with an eternal perspective. Why is that so important? Why do we have to work so hard at doing that? Paul gives two reasons here, verse 18 and following. The command, verse 17 the explanation, verse 18 and following. And the first reason is because many, for many, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, and that is a little insight into Paul's heart because he's about to say some tough things, but you have to know as he says those tough things, it didn't make him happy to see people living like that. It grieved him, and that's why as he's writing, he's weeping because there are many whose lifestyle, whose walk, whose life, is lived out as an enemy of the cross of Christ. And so we have to work at imitating Paul and, and living a Christ-centered life because we're in a war. And the gospel we say we love has enemies. We're in a battle zone as Christians. I was listening to one of my friends a little while ago, and, and someone asked him, what drives you? Because he's a pretty driven guy. And uh, they, they were asking, really, why are you so disciplined? Why are you working so hard? And he said, two things drive him. And here's, here's the first. He said, I know that somewhere out there, someone else is also preparing. And that person is my enemy. And he's working, he's training, he's planning, he's preparing to meet me on the battlefield of life. He doesn't know where, my friend said. He doesn't know when, but he does know he is going to, and he wants to be ready. What drives him? First, he says, I know I have an enemy, and that drives me. What drives us? Paul says here, one thing that should drive us is that Christ has enemies. The cross of Christ, the gospel, has enemies. Not just one enemy, Satan, but enemies. 
followers of Satan. You should never take for granted as a Christian that you are involved in a spiritual war. Why can't you just sit back? Why do you have to press on? Why do we have to be getting together and talking about who you are and how you can live for Christ and reading about people who did and looking for people who do and reflecting on how you can live the way they did? I mean, that's a lot of work. Why do we have to be like that? We have to be like that because the gospel has a lot of enemies. And we wish it wasn't like that. And we weep that it's like that. But it's like that. If you're not working at being like Paul and making Jesus your first priority, there are lots of people out there who are going to influence you to be like them. And you don't want to be like them because they are enemies of the gospel of Christ. And Paul says their end is destruction. You see that in verse 19? Their end is destruction. In other words, this is not a make-believe war we're talking about. This is not something we're watching on television. We are in this war, and wrong decisions have consequences. The enemies of the cross of Christ are going to be destroyed. We don't always look at life from a big enough perspective. I was thinking this week, one of the things I have to teach my kids is that living here is dangerous in Orange County. And I know it's dangerous because the Bible says that prosperity is dangerous. So if you look from a biblical perspective, prosperity is not wrong, but it's dangerous. Paul's often talking about the dangers of prosperity. So as I teach my children how to live life here, I need to be thinking as a dad, I need to prepare them to live in a dangerous world, a dangerous context. And yet, a lot of times it's hard to think like that because we don't look at life from a big enough perspective. And so a lot of stuff doesn't feel very earnest. It doesn't feel very urgent. It's kind of like the Titanic. Imagine if someone tried to get us on the Titanic knowing what we know now. So if we could go back in time and they tried to get you on the Titanic, you'd be like, no way. (laughs) That thing's sinking. But they're like, parties, man, parties. Lots of free food on there. No way. That thing's sinking. They're like, you know what? You don't even have to pay for the ticket. There are a lot of other people going on. What's the big deal? No way. That thing's sinking. Or imagine if you could go back in the past to the Titanic before it sank, and you're standing outside the ship on the dock as people are getting on. What are you telling them? You're telling them, get off. Don't get on that thing. Why? Because you know how the story ends, right? That ship is sinking. But as you're pleading, they're thinking, this guy is crazy. It's not going to feel like a big deal to them because they don't know how the story ends. But you do, and that changes everything. We know how this war ends. God wins. There's a place called heaven, and there's a place called hell. And there's a lot, a lot A lot of people going there, which is why we have to be a little bit serious. We're not living in a safe place spiritually. The gospel has enemies. We're at war, and those enemies are going to be destroyed. And honestly, the reality is those enemies of the cross of Christ are all around us. I mean, just look at the way Paul describes them. He says, what does he, how does he describe them? He says, their God is their belly. So what do the enemies of the cross of Christ look like? Their God is their belly. What they want right now is what they're living for. That's what it means to have your belly be your God. They worship themselves. They they glory in their shame. The, The very things they should be ashamed of are the things they're most proud of. Their minds are set on earthly things. I think we've all seen movies, uh, maybe to come at this another way. We've all seen movies where a young boy has really grown up in a difficult place, like the hood or something, and there are all these gangs around him, and his mom, maybe, or a teacher wants him to get out to succeed, but he's influenced by these gangs, and it's like there's a a battle going on between the mom. She's like, don't be like these guys, and the kid doesn't know which way to go because the gangs are like, follow us, and as you watch, you know what's gonna happen. If he follows the gangs, you know where that leads. It's obvious in a movie. 
But as we go out and seek to live as Christians in this world, it's not always so obvious to us. We watch the movie, and as the young boy is wrestling with this decision, we're like, stay away from those guys, please. And, and the young boy is like arguing with his mom. You don't understand. You don't know these guys. We're yelling at the television. No, no, man, don't follow those guys. You're going to die. It's obvious. But as you live your life, you have to understand you are in danger of doing the same thing. You're not living in a safe world spiritually. The gospel has enemies. Those enemies are going to be destroyed. And if you look at the way Paul describes those enemies, they look like a lot of the people around us. So you're at work and you're talking to this guy whose only concern in life is to make as much money as he can so he can live as comfortable a life as possible. That's his vision of the good life. And he doesn't look dangerous. He looks normal. And obviously he's not your enemy. You love him. You want to see him come to Christ because you know where this heads. But listen, that attitude, that attitude is the attitude of someone who is an enemy of the cross of Christ. His God is his belly. Or you're standing outside talking to your neighbor and he's wanting to brag to you about how many times he's been unfaithful to his wife. His glory is his shame. Or, or you're with your family and all they can talk about are earthly things. And if we're not careful, all that shapes us. And so we have to look at what we're longing for, our goals, our visions of the good life, and ask, do we want what we should want? To put Christ above all, to press on for the prize, to intentionally live with an eternal perspective. We can't just go with the flow because the flow the direction the unbelieving world is headed to is hell. Unless they turn around. And so we have to get together. We have to have spiritual conversations. And we have to talk about how to apply what we're seeing in the Bible to our everyday life. And we have to be looking for examples of people who are doing that and trying to pattern ourselves after them. First, because we're not in heaven yet. We're living in this world, and it's, and it's a battle zone. And there are many people who are choosing to live their life as an enemy of the cross of Christ. And if we're not careful, if we're not intentionally imitating Paul and involved in biblical friendships like we're reading about here, those people are going to end up shaping us. And we can't let them shape us. Second, because we don't belong to the world the way they do. That's the second reason. Paul says, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. There's a contrast. We live differently because we are different. Something's happened. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. We're citizens of heaven now. And, and Paul's using a picture here that would have been really familiar to the Philippians because they obviously lived in a place called Philippi. Uh, and Philippi was a colony of the Roman Empire, which was a big deal because Rome was in charge of most of the world at that point. And because they were so powerful, there was like nothing better than being a Roman citizen. Because Roman citizens had so many privileges. And yet not everybody could live in Rome. The city of Rome wasn't big enough for like the whole world to come to Rome. And so Rome, what it did was establish colonies in other parts of the world, which were like mini Romes. And so if you lived there, you were a Roman citizen and you had all the privileges of being part of Rome, even though you were living somewhere else, which meant if you were a Philippian living in Philippi, which was one of these mini colonies, you were living in Greece, but you were a citizen of Rome, like us as believers. We're living on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now, one of the advantages of being a Roman colony, if you come back to Philippi, was that if ever your city got in trouble, being attacked by enemies or something, you weren't on your own. You had the promise of a Roman emperor who would come down to your rescue. And so if you're in Philippi, you're under attack, what are you doing? You're looking to Rome for your savior, lowercase s, your deliverer, which Paul is saying is how we are supposed to be living out our lives in this world as Christians. That's the point. We're in a spiritual war. The gospel comes under attack and what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be looking to heaven for our savior, for our deliverer to come. Because we've got this promise that when he does, he's going to change everything. And that's why we have to be looking to Paul and asking, how do I live with an eternal perspective? 
And we have to be looking to other Christians and seeing how do I live all out for Christ because we're living as citizens of heaven, serving a king from heaven in the middle of a world that hates him. And we don't want to just give up and become like the world. You know, like someone living in Philippi who just says, whatever, we've been waiting too long for Rome. Let's just give in to the enemies who are attacking us. No, we're waiting for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is coming from heaven, who's going to change everything. We're looking and we're waiting for him to come back and rescue us because we know what's going to happen when he does. We are going to be saved, truly, fully, completely saved. And for us as Christians, we know that salvation is actually the good life. I mean, look at how Paul describes it in verse 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And this is awesome. Paul says, Jesus is going to use his power. The very same power that he uses to, to bring the entire universe under his control and make everything perfect, he's going to use that power to make your body right now, your physical body, the body you have that dies, this lowly body, you could say, he's going to transform that body to be like his glorious body. You are going to have a resurrected body that cannot die, that cannot get sick, that cannot suffer, and that's good news. The gospel doesn't only tell us Jesus came. It promises that Jesus is coming back, and his long-term plan, if you just fast forward all the way to the end, is you living with a perfect body, in a perfect world, with perfect people, and in his perfect presence forever. That is reality. And that eternal reality should change what you're living for, hoping for, longing for now. It should change what matters most to us as a church. It should change our culture, this vision we have of the good life. But if it's going to, listen, we have to think about it. We have to take action because we're living in a world with people who don't believe that. And it's sad, but it's real. And they're influencing you all the time. And if you're not careful, you're gonna end up coming to church, having the same pictures the world does. This is worth. This is wealth. This is worth. This is wealth. You're going to end up coming to church if you're not careful, saying you believe these great gospel realities, but living for the same exact things a person who doesn't believe in the resurrection does. And you don't want that because there is a resurrection. So what do you do? You go back to the essentials. What is this gospel I believe? What drove Paul? Who drove Paul? What would it look like for Jesus to be your everything? For you to be depending on him completely for your relationship with God? For you to be seeking his glory above all? You think, you, you pray, you work at developing intentional friendships with other believers where you take time to think together about how to live all out for Jesus and like there's a resurrection of the dead. Get specific together. Let them into your life. Don't try to fool them into thinking that you're someone you're not. Let them know what's really going on in the inside and let them confront you with the gospel and remind you of the real picture of the good life and question your status quo. Try not to do this. This is something that we often do with our friends. And it's really, I think it's not a very helpful habit. So I'm gonna get real specific for a second here. But try not to do that thing where you... Stop the confrontation before the confrontation. So there's a little trick that we're good at doing, and that is we know that our friend could confront us for something, and we're, but we're still going to share it with them. So before, before we share it, we say it's not that. So we say, oh, it's, it's not that I, I'm not longing for heaven, but this is how I'm living right now. And so you see what we do there is we make it difficult for people to get in. Because we're already saying, you can't confront me about this. Because I already recognized that and I've thought it all through. 
and I know it's not that. No, you don't. You don't know yourself as well as you think you do. So give them a chance. You need friends, real friends, who are actually able to get in there and, and help you mess with the way that you're thinking about life. And ask them to. Ask them to. And, and then don't just think and talk. Work at finding people who are trying to live their life with a Christ-centered, eternal perspective. And then attempt to live like they do. Like imit actually imitate them. Find someone for whom Christ is everything. Maybe it's in your study, a biography maybe. Maybe it's one of the missionaries the church sends out. Maybe it's someone who's serving Jesus here at the church. But find someone who is clearly making decisions on the basis of the resurrection of the dead and ask them questions and ask for help and listen when they talk and then seek to do what they do. In this world of people who are all living as if now was all there was, let's pray that God would make us a different kind of people, help us to have a different kind of culture, a church who believes the gospel, who believes that Jesus not only saves us from the penalty of sin and that Jesus not only saves us from the power of sin, that one day Jesus will save us from the presence of sin and who shows the world what it looks like to believe that who gives the world a different picture of, of the good life by living radically Christ-centered lives with an eternal perspective the way that Paul did. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we love your word. It's so different. <laughs> Open our ears so we could hear, Lord. Our ears so often have been stuffed by the cotton of the world, all this propaganda, all these ideas about how life is, and we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to wake us up so that we could see this different kind of life, this Christ-centered, eternal perspective. This is what we believe, Lord. Help us believe it and also help us to live it. Help us to be a church here in Orange County where it's clear that we are, we, Christ is our everything. And one way that's clear is that we're really living for eternity. Teach us even what that means, Lord, please. Help us provide a, a pattern for others to follow, for those who are children, for others around us to follow, uh, so that they too can live a Christ-centered life with an eternal perspective. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.